0: Morning. Thank you, Patty, for reading our passage today. Before we get to our passage, let me just remind you that this letter to the Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, to Jews who were being pressured in their culture from the Romans, from their fellow Jews, to drift away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to combat that drift, the author uh, goes at great pains to proclaim Jesus' superiority over everything, over everyone. It's as if he's saying, look at how great Jesus is. Why would you want anything else? From the beginning, he shows that Jesus is greater than the Jewish prophets. That God spoke first through the prophets... But This is verse 2 of chapter 1, "...but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power." Jesus is identified as much more than a prophet, much more than a great teacher, He's the Son of God, He's the heir of all things, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is God come in human flesh. What could possibly be better than Him? Then throughout the rest of chapter 1, the author continues to describe Christ's glory and power demonstrating his superiority to angels. And in chapter 2, verses 5-9, through nine, which we looked at last week, he shows Jesus' greatness as the one who solved humanity's problem of sin and lost dominion. In verse 9, he writes, But we see him for who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. At the fall, through Adam's sin, humanity lost dominion over creation. But by his humiliation, becoming a man, and sacrificially tasting death for each and every one of us, Jesus regained what Adam lost. And for that, he's exalted. He's crowned with glory and honor. The author's point is that all of this, is to direct our eyes our focus to look to Jesus. See who he truly is. See all he's accomplished for them for us and reject the temptation to drift away from the gospel that declares his greatness and glory, his saving power. And he continues to make that point in our passage today. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 through 13. Here we find more reasons to cling to Jesus. Specifically, we see that Jesus brings many sons to glory. Through his sacrificial worth work, his death and resurrection, he not only, as we saw last week, regains what humanity lost at the fall, but he brings people, sons, daughters, into the glorious family of God. So let's turn to our passage. Where the first thing we see, I want us to see, is that Jesus is our older brother. Jesus is our older brother. Now, uh, normally I kind of go verse by verse, phrase by phrase through a passage. We're going to be jumping around a little bit because some of the stuff that comes first, you need to see what comes after it. So anyway, Jesus is our older brother. We're going to establish these truths and then see them all come together. This is really found in every verse. In verse 10, the author writes that God through Christ is bringing many sons to glory. Now just so we're clear, sons include both males and females. The word son in the Greek can refer to a male child, but it also refers to descendants in general. And we know that those who are in Christ, whether male or female, all are descendants, sons and daughters of God. So Jesus, the Son of God is the first, the oldest, if you will, of many sons of God that he's bringing to glory. Then in verse 11, it tells us that for he, Jesus, who sanctifies, and those Christians who are sanctified all have one source. So we'll look at that sanctify stuff later, but right now we're looking at the one source. Or as the NIV puts it, are of the same family. As Christians, we now belong to the same family as Jesus. And verse 11 goes on to say, That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, Christians, brothers. Those who are sanctified by by Christ are brothers to Christ. And like the word sons, this word brothers in the Greek can include both brothers and sisters. Then in verse 12, Jesus promises, I, Jesus, will tell of your God's name to my brothers. Jesus will reveal God's name, his nature, to his brothers and sisters. And finally, in verse 13, continuing the same idea, we read, Behold, I, Jesus, and the children God has given me. God gives us as children, brothers and sisters, to Jesus. So so the point is, Jesus is the older brother of every Christian. Now, this is not an image. We're we're more familiar with the image of uh, God the Father, right? Right? We don't really focus on Jesus as the brother. Not an image that everyone finds attractive, even, especially if you're a younger brother or sister. I, for instance, am the oldest of two boys, and I was not the greatest older brother. I spent more time arguing, fighting with my brother than encouraging and protecting him. But unlike me, the Lord Jesus is the best, the perfect older brother. He is a source of inspiration, of motivation, of encouragement for younger members of God's family. And even more importantly, he is the source of salvation and blessing for his spiritual siblings. In the Roman world, as in most of the world throughout history, the oldest son was the sole heir to the family's fortune. He would receive everything his father owned. And the same is true of Jesus. He inherits everything from his father, but by His grace and mercy, He allows His younger brothers and sisters to be co-heirs with Him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, speaking of those who trust in Christ, the Apostle Paul writes, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Jesus, as we sing. Jesus is the one and only natural and eternal Son of God. And by grace, we who trust in Him are adopted into the family to which Jesus belongs as the, as the rightful natural Son. We are not His brothers and sisters because we're children of God. Get this. Instead, we are children of God because we're Jesus' brothers and sisters. Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Where he writes, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We're adopted by God through, because of what Jesus has done in bringing us to glory. 19th century mathematician and pastor Hugh Martin. He's just like me. I'm a mathematician. I'm a pastor. I like this guy. We find sonship in him. For He is the Son. The adopted sons have this privilege in the eternal Son. To bring saved men into filial relationships to God required a Savior standing in that relationship Himself. Hence, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son that He might obtain the adoption of sons. Again, we're adopted by God through Christ. And then God, through His Spirit, does a work in our hearts, in our minds, to make us members of His new family. And what does this new family look like? Well, look in the mirror. No, just kidding. Well, in a word, actually, don't look in the mirror, it looks like Jesus. That's our second point. Jesus exemplifies God's new family. Every family has distinguishing characteristics, right? Right? In some families, it's brains. In others, it's looks. That's my family. Mom, thinks. Just kidding. In others, it's wealth. In still others, it's laziness, dishonesty, violence. So what are the distinguishing characteristics of God's family? Well, in God's new family, every younger sibling must aspire to be like their older brother. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we find two characteristics of Jesus that should be seen in every member of God's family. First, God's new family is destined for glory. As we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 earlier, Jesus has always been the radiance of the glory of God. And Jesus, the Son of Man, upon his resurrection and ascension, entered into the glory of God, seated at his right hand. And in verse 10, we read God in Christ is bringing many sons. Where? To glory. We're to follow Jesus to glory. This is, in fact, the goal or the destination of the Christian life. Remember, God created man to share in his glory. What does that mean? It means we're to reflect His image, His beauty, His majesty, His splendor. We are to have dominion over His glorious creation. We're to share in the glory of God through Jesus Christ. However, the problem, as we saw last week, is that humanity created in the glory of God's image had that image shattered by the entrance of sin. When Adam sinned, we lost dominion and glory. But God through Christ has regained what we lost in Adam. Romans 9, excuse me, 8:28 tells us, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, to be like their older brother, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those "...whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified." Those who God foreknew, He predestined, He chose. For what purpose? That they might be justified, made right, justified before God, that they might be conformed to the image of His Son, that they might be brothers to Christ in the family of God. And ultimately, When we see Christ face to face, we'll be glorified fully. That's what it means that Christ is bringing many sons to glory. As members of God's family, with Christ as our older brother, we are in the process of becoming more like Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory. So that's the first thing Jesus exemplifies about God's family. Those in God's family are, like Jesus, destined for glory. And that should give us hope. That should give us encouragement. That should give us uh, uh, motivation now and encouragement for our future. Helen is experiencing that glory of God, that fullness in God's glory. That and she's been glorified as well in a in a mysterious way that we don't understand. So there's we're destined for glory. And the second thing is that, like Jesus, God's new family is dedicated to holiness. Our older brother Jesus, the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity is, uh, this is the word that's repeated thrice when talking about God, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is perfectly, completely holy. And in verse 11 of Hebrews 2, it tells us, for he, Jesus, who sanctifies in, he's in the business of sanctifying. He's setting us apart, making us holy. That's what the sanctifies means. And those Christians who are sanctified, being set apart, being made holy, all have the same force, source, are all in the same family. If we're part of God's new family, then our lives must be characterized by holiness. The holiness of our older brother Jesus. We must be dedicated to living holy, pure, godly lives. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect, this side of heaven. It means that Christians, in the power of the Holy Spirit, for there is no other way, are to be about the business of becoming holy. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We need to get this, okay? Yes, when we come to Christ in faith, God does a miraculous work in our hearts. We're new creatures in Christ. He declares, He counts us in Christ to be holy and blameless before Him. Amen? Amen? But it seems many Christians want to stop there with that declaration and for some reason think they can continue living as they used to. But that's not an option. The Christian life is about becoming who God has already declared you to be in Christ. We say we want to live for Jesus. We want to know and do God's will for our life. We read books about knowing God's will. But do we take seriously what the book, God's Word, plainly says? For example, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's it. God's will for you, brothers and sisters in Christ, is your sanctification. He wants you to grow in holiness, to become more like Jesus. But for most Christians, dedication to holiness is not a top priority in their life. Francis Schaeffer wants to find the basic aspiration of people today, including evangelical Christians, as material affluence and enough personal peace to enjoy it. Material affluence and enough personal peace to enjoy it. Just keep those wars away from my country. So I can enjoy what I've been given. But what we see in this passage, and really the whole Bible, is something far greater. A higher and more wonderful destiny, aspiration we should have. We were born again in Christ as fellow brothers and sisters, destined for glory. Therefore, we must dedicate ourselves to holiness. We must grow in holiness which involves the progressive removal of the old self, leaving behind sin while we put on the new self. We call this process, again, sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, growing in our faith, maturing. We have different words for it, but it's all the same thing. And it's our destiny. It's our duty, and it, we need to be dedicated to it. Paul describes it in Ephesians four twenty-one through 24 Assuming that you've heard about Jesus and were taught in Him, so this isn't just for everybody, as the truth is in Jesus, this is the truth, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, put it off, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Life is not about doing everything you can to get promoted at your job, to gain wealth, to be entertained, or to do fun stuff. Life in Christ is about putting off your old sinful self and putting on the new self which is created in the likeness of God. Putting off sin... Putting on righteousness and holiness. Life in Christ is about growing in holiness, which equals growing to be more like Jesus, who is holy, holy, holy. In fact, how do you do that? Well, here's one way. You're not going to like it. This is why God allows us, or even causes us, ooh, to go through trials. As we learned last week in James, as Brian preached, we are, we are to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials in this life test our faith. When we, a trial comes, our faith is tested These trials cause us either to, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot, reject God, or they cause us to run to God. For the Christian, trials increase our dependence on the Lord. They produce steadfastness in our relationship with God. And out of that steadfast relationship with God comes completeness, maturity, holiness. The problem is, we spend most of our time avoiding trials Therefore, we spend most of our time avoiding holiness, completeness. Instead, we pursue the pleasures of this life. No wonder we struggle with our sin. No wonder we're not being conformed to the image of Christ. No wonder the church today is not known for its holiness. But the author of Hebrews, who wants to motivate us to be more like Jesus, says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. You want Jesus to not be ashamed to call you a brother, a sister? Jesus has provided for us the process and the power of sanctification. Here it is. I've given you the way. I've opened the door, I've provided forgiveness for your sins, I've made you a new creature in Christ, I've given you the Holy Spirit, so that we can now, in this life, become more like Him. Therefore, He's not ashamed to call us brothers, because we are destined for glory and dedicated to holiness. This is, that is, we're we're becoming more like our older brother Jesus, who bought us, excuse me, who brought us into the family of God. Now, the question comes, what did Jesus do to bring us into God's new family? And we find the answer here in our passage. That's our third point. Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. In verse 10, the author says that Jesus is the founder of their, of our salvation. Or in the NIV, the author of their salvation. The Greek word for founder and author here is our. Archegos, which perhaps is better translated forerunner or pioneer. In his commentary on Hebrews, F.F. F. Bruce explains, he is, the savior who bla- bra- excuse me. he is the Savior who blazed the trail of salvation along which alone God's many sons could be brought to glory. Man created by God for his glory was prevented by sin from attaining that glory until the Son of Man came and opened up by His death a new way by which humanity might reach the goal for which it was made. As this people's representative and forerunner, He has now entered into the presence of God to secure their entry there. I don't know if you want to take a picture of that. It's a good summary of of what we're now going to talk about. The idea of a pioneer is familiar to most Americans, right? We studied about those those people. Our nation's expansion was made possible by the courage, the tenacity of men and women who headed west in covered wagons in the face of great hardship and danger. I just watched a movie called hmm, The Big Trail, The Lost Trail. It's John Wayne, it's really old. Man, Watch that movie and you'll see, I mean, it's a movie. But they're having to hoist their cows down. It's it's crazy. Anyways, if you ever go to St. Louis to visit my son and my granddaughters, uh, I recommend going to the Gateway Arch. Have you been there? The arch represents the fact that uh, St. Louis, on the Mississippi there, uh, was the gateway to the West. And under the arch is a museum filled with exhibits about the American. I recommend, we went up the arch. I'm not big, I was a little scary, but the museum is great. Exhibit about the American pioneers, including possibly the greatest pioneers of all Meriwether, Mer, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. These men opened the West as they searched for the North. West Passage. Lewis and Clark headed west from St. Louis with a small band of men and a few supplies, but their skills, courage, and determination saw them through to success. Their greatest achievement was certainly crossing the Rocky Mountains. This was a terrifying and treacherous... I mean, have you driven across those things? Can you imagine? I mean, there's a road. Christine and I got delayed in one drive because rocks fell on the road in front of us. Fortunately, they didn't fall on our car. We were sitting there for an hour waiting, and we had a road. These guys had nothing. Uh, Terrifying, treacherous barrier that none of their fellow pioneers had dared to face, but Lewis and Clark found a way. And in these men, we have a picture of what it means to be a courageous pioneer. History tells us that many followed the trail they blazed to the west. They, in a sense, brought many sons to the West. And this image is appropriate to the work of Jesus Christ in our salvation. Like those determined settlers who followed Lewis and Clark into the West, we follow a path blazed only by Jesus. A path only Jesus could blaze. Jesus leads, brings us into the promised land of salvation and eternal life. He's gone where where we could not go. But by his righteousness and truth, he's opened up a a way for us to go to heaven. This is what he explained to his disciples just before leaving them to take up his cross. In my Father's house, this is John 14, verses 2 through 4. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I'm going when they asked him what what's the way Jesus replied with these immortal words I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and the writer of Hebrews identifies Jesus as the way the founder the pioneer the trailblazer whom we must trust and follow now, if Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation, uh, what was the barrier that we could not cross? But he found a way. He blazed a trail for us to follow. The answer is seen in Genesis chapter 3. Here we discover the barrier created by humanity's fall into sin and the curse of God's wrath. Beginning in verse 23, Genesis chapter 3 Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was ta- from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of his sin, man lost fellowship with God, was driven out of the garden, and was under the curse of God's wrath and ultimate death. This is seen in the cherubim, who with his flaming sword stopped the man from returning to the garden and eating from the tree of life. Man, humanity, because of sin, was under the condemnation of God, for the wages of sin is death. There was a great barrier erected, a great divide, much larger than the Rocky Mountains between a holy God and a sinful people, a barrier that no mere man could cross, In the life and worship of Israel, the barrier was symbolized in a number of ways, but one was by that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was a place where God's presence was said to dwell. And no one was allowed to enter except the high priest, and even he would enter only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There he would, in fear and trepidation because of his own sin, Offer the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And this went on year after year because the sacrifice, that sacrificial blood, the blood of an animal offered by Israel's high priest was not sufficient to rid them of the barrier between themselves and God. But then Jesus came. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He was the perfect Lamb of God. The perfect sacrifice for our sins. And in his final act from the cross, Matthew records that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus willingly sacrificed his life for you and me and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus gave his life, he not only crossed the barrier between God and man that we could not cross. He tore it from top to bottom. Jesus is superior to all. He alone is the pioneer of our salvation. Therefore, we must worship, honor, trust, and follow Him in everything we do and say. Because He blazed the trail for us. He made it possible for us that we might follow Him into relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews says that through his pioneering efforts, fourth point, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. The trail that Jesus blazed for you and me uh, involved, led to, caused his suffering. It meant his suffering, the humiliation of taking on flesh. It meant the suffering of going to the cross, of taking on our sin. As Paul said, he became sin For us, it meant experiencing the wrath of God that we deserved. No greater suffering could have been experienced than the moment sinless Jesus took on the sin and experienced the wrath of God. At at that moment from the cross, He proclaimed, My God, My God, why have you forsaken Me? So the suffering is clear. We get that. But what does it mean that He was made perfect through suffering? Wasn't Jesus, the Son of God, always perfect, sinless, holy, holy, holy? Yes. But what, uh, what Hebrews is saying is that he was perfected, not in his character, but in his office, in his position as Christ, as Messiah, as the anointed deliverer, as the Savior. Jesus was always the perfect Son of God, but it wasn't until the suffering of the cross that he became the perfect Savior. F.F. Bruce explains it this way, The perfect Son of God has become His people's perfect Savior, opening up their way to God. And in order to become that, He must endure suffering and death. Now the word perfect in the Greek also includes this idea of consecrating, to make sacred or holy. Holy. Priests in the temple perfected or consecrated themselves for service before God. The high priest before the day of atonement, he had to go through a lot of stuff before he could pass through that curtain that once a year. Cleansing the bodies, donning priestly clothes. Likewise, as William Lane points out, Jesus was fully equipped for his office. God qualified Jesus to come before him in priestly action. He perfected him as a priest of his people through his suffering, which permitted him to accomplish his redemptive mission. The writer of Hebrews here begins a theme that we'll see again and again throughout this letter, this book. Jesus, the trium- the true high priest, to whom all other priests point, offered his own life and gave his own blood to open the way for sinners to come to God. Hebrews 9.12 tells us, He he entered once for all into the holy places. This was was it. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And because Jesus became the high priest who shed His blood for us, because He was made perfect through suffering... Because He blazed a trail for us, we read in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith. Because of what Jesus, our older brother, our great high priest did, because through him God created a new family, because he became the perfect Savior through the suffering of his shed blood, because he pioneered a way through the curtain separating us from God, therefore, we can draw near to God. We are adopted into his family. We're children of God. We're brothers to Christ. We can, through faith, be reconciled to God. Because of his suffering, he was made the perfect Savior, and therefore we can be brought to glory. So, now that we've seen that Jesus, our older brother, what he did, continues to do for us, we can go back to the beginning of verse 10 and understand why the author declares, For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things existed, as the creator of all things, And the one that all things were created for, it is fitting that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering. What what an amazing statement. It was fitting. It was right for God to perfect Jesus Christ through suffering. Why? Because it was through His suffering that our salvation and God's glory was achieved. Hours before his crucifixion, Jesus uh, began what what we call his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, verse, verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. At the cross, through his suffering, the Son would glorify his Father. He would glorify him through his obedience, through his willingness to give his life, And He would glorify Him by opening a way to bring many sons to glory. Jesus glorifies His Father by bringing many sons, people, into the kingdom of God where our purpose, and I pray our joy, is to glorify God. For those who have experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ, of God through Jesus Christ in our lives, we know that it causes our hearts to worship to worship him and him alone to glorify the one who suffered that we might be saved so it might even be an understatement to say that it was fitting that god made jesus the perfect savior through suffering jesus suffered in obedience to his father he suffered for the forgiveness of our sins he suffered to reconcile us to god he suffered to reveal who god is to reveal the height the depth the width Of God's great love. He suffered that we might know God is love. St. Augustine wrote The cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. Here is God's love revealed in an infinite degree. Here's the extent to which he was willing to go for our good and for his glory. Theologian John Murray said, the truth of God's love resulting in Christ's suffering for our sake elevates us to the summit of amazement. He, writes, he then writes, What love for men that the Father could execute, execute upon His own Son the full toll of holy wrath so that we should never taste it. This was John's amazement when he wrote, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation, an atonement for our sins. For His glory, for our good, it was fitting that God perfected His Son through suffering. And this leads us to our final point. Back to the family God created. In this family, Jesus, our older brother, is not ashamed to call us brothers. We touched on this already, but now that we've covered all the parts of verses 10 and 11, we can see it in context and then move to 12 and 13. Okay? Let me read 10 and 11 altogether. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed because what was done to make us his brothers was fitting. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers because we're in the process of sanctification. We're becoming more like him, I pray. And as he's done before, the author of Hebrews turns to the Old Testament to prove and and even expand on this point. He goes first to Psalm 22, which begins with the words that we already saw. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm points to Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, from this psalm, the author of Hebrews utilizes, attributes these words to Jesus. Verse 12 Hebrews chapter 2, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus' lack of shame for his brothers is seen in the fact that he tells them about God. He reveals through himself the nature of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus' lack of shame for his brothers is then seen in the fact that he sings with them. He worships with them. They praise the Lord together. Then in verse 13 presents two verses, and so you're going to have to, this is, this could take a while. I mean, it's not going to take a while, but we could spend a lot of time here, but I'm going to summarize. It's two verses from the eighth chapter of Isaiah, verses 17 and 18. The prophet, Isaiah, had exhorted the people to trust in the Lord. That's what Prophets did and do, but he'd been rejected by his own evil generation. They had said, we're we're not going to do that. However, God had promised him, Isaiah, sons, people who would follow him in faith, pointing ultimately to Isaiah chapter 9, to a virgin who would be with child. And in light of the promise of sons who would follow Isaiah in the faith, Isaiah cried out, and the author of Hebrews quotes, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. By putting Isaiah's words in the mouth of our Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit is telling us that like Isaiah's faithful children, God's children given to Jesus, that's us and many others, are the testimony of God's faithfulness in this generation, in the generation in which they live. Therefore, Jesus, our older brother, is not ashamed of his brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed of his brothers because we're being sanctified. We're becoming more like him. And this is seen in the fact that we are both worshipers of God And we are given to Jesus as a testimony of God's faithfulness in this generation. Oh God, where's God in this world today? He's right here. And He's right in every church that's worshiping the one true God this morning. And in every life of every believer, we're a testimony to God's faithfulness. And that leads to one final application. If it was fitting for God to send His Son to die on the cross, how much more, or how fitting is it for us to be His witnesses in our generation? How fitting is it for us to bear the hatred of the world the way Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit? How fitting is it for us to sing His praises out of the fullness of our hearts and to declare His name not only before our brothers but before the world as we bring countless others into his and our family. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. And he's given us the gospel to declare the way to God. To cry out, Jesus Christ provides reconciliation with God. So the question is, are we ashamed of him? Are we ashamed to tell the world about him? One of the testimonies yesterday in Helen's service over and over again was that she was not. She was bold and she was willing to share. She was willing to tell people about Jesus wherever she went. And that impressed me. To Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote, "...therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord." nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. You know, not being ashamed doesn't mean things are going to always go well for you. It might probably mean some kind of suffering. I mean, today it probably doesn't mean governmental persecution yet, but it, but it means people not liking you. If you're all about being liked, don't share the gospel. And then of himself, Paul adds, I am not ashamed. This is verse 12. Same chapter. For I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. May we also be unashamed like Helen, like Paul in our testimony to Christ and His gospel. For through our witness, He will bring many sons and daughters to glory. Amen? As I pray in closing, I'd ask that the ushers and the worship team come forward, and we're going to enter into a time of communion. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this message. Thank you for your word, for Jesus. Lord, we, we, we should probably fall on our knees and just worship and honor him the author, the perfecter, the pioneer of our salvation, our older brother who's given us this amazing example to follow. Lord, help us to follow him, to walk in his steps, to be more like him as we head for glory, and help us to be unashamed to share the true gospel with those you put in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. The Lord's table communion is a celebration, a remembrance of Christ's suffering, that he made our perfect Savior, that God made our perfect Savior suffer, that those who trust in him might be saved. Therefore, it bridges communion is for those who trust in Christ, for all the sons and daughters he's bringing, has brought, is bringing to glory. If you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're welcome to participate with us. However, if if you've yet to put your faith in him, I'm happy that you're here, but I ask that you not participate in communion. Just observe the time. So I'm going to pass out the elements, the ushers are going to pass the elements, and Gary's going to... You're going to lead us in a song. who are the new family of God, come to the Lord's table. We remember and focus on the suffering of our older brother, the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus Christ. We remember that for our sake, he was nailed to a cross. He took on our sin. He received the wrath of God upon himself that we deserved. He gave his life for us that we might experience forgiveness of sin, that we might escape from eternal death, that we might receive the gift of eternal life in His presence. And in response, we must give Him our lives in worship and service to Him. We must live our lives becoming more like Jesus. Let's take a moment in silent prayer. Use this time to prepare your heart to confess your sins to God, to establish or renew your commitment to Christ. Let us pray. you join me in the remembrance of Christ's suffering for you and me? We begin with the bread. If you Take the bread. In Luke's gospel, we read, and Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of Christ's suffering, his broken body for our sake, And with the joy of knowing we're destined for glory with Him, let's partake of the bread together.